You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Hey, welcome to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. I'm Steve Jenkins. Well, as of today, the election is two weeks away from now. And I hope by this point everyone is registered to vote and has made a plan to vote early or mail in their ballot. My guest this week is Stephen Wolf, or as people call him, Wolf. Wolf is a drummer, programmer, songwriter, and music producer. His discography includes numerous gold, platinum, and Grammy winning records. He's worked with a range of artists, including Alicia Keys, Katy Perry, Beyonce, Annie Lennox, Miley Cyrus, Pink, Aretha Franklin, Avril Lavigne, Britney Spears, Celine Dion, The Bee Gees, David Bowie, and Grover Washington Jr. Wolf and I talk about all kinds of things for nearly two hours, so this is another mega episode. We talk about everything ranging from evolving as a musician, expanding one's horizons in terms of moving away from chops-oriented playing to more song-oriented playing, dealing with playing-related injuries and how to transcend them, the ego and how it relates to making music, and we also talk about the current state of things in the world. Also, I'd like to say rest in power to Richard Zukowski. At one point during this conversation, Wolf and I talk about hoshinotherapy, and Richard was the man who introduced us to hoshinotherapy. I actually heard about Richard's treatments from Dave Fuzinski. I think we might have talked about that on his episode, but essentially, Richard helped a lot of musicians who were dealing with injuries like tendonitis or carpal tunnel, and he showed us how to basically fix ourselves through better living and through stretching. And, you know, countless people went. Wolf, myself, Dave Fuzinski, John Modeski, uh, as you heard on this episode, Mike Rivard, who's a stellar bass player uh, who still lives up in the Boston area. Uh, in any case, this chat was from a few months ago. Wolf had been in L.A. for a few months at this point, and he talks about how he got out here from New York. And here's how that conversation went. Everyone ends up calling me Jenkins, and it's never because I've explicitly said, hey, you should call me this. Like, it always turns out. Yeah, just always, happens. Yeah. yeah. Is that how it was for you, like with, with Wolf? Um, I, I think when I was a kid, it was some people would call me Wolf or Wolfman or Wolfie, but then it was it got solidified when I joined Hiram Bullock's band because Steve Logan was on bass. And so just automatically he was like, You're Logan, you're Wolf. And then it stuck. But dude, in any case, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, you and I have connected like briefly before, but uh and you you're out here now, right? Too we're both in LA. Yeah, I've been here three years. For a while, yeah. And then we, we, you and I almost connected last time you were in New York when I was home there. Yep. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, we've talked here and there, but yeah, this, this came about today through Adam and I talking and you asked, you asked a pretty deep question, not yeah. the usual shit. So, but yeah, so no, I'm glad to be here. We kind of missed each other in the live scene. Um, Cause you, you play with Fuse or you did play with Fuse, but I, I think about 10 years after I did, so like I, we know we have a lot of people in common, but I was, I was kind of out of the New York live thing by the, like, when, when did you start to get heavily into the, like the New York live scene? Well, basically, um, the way that ended up working was I met Fuse because 
I had him play on my first record, you know, um, which I think now I believe that's more of the paradigm for a lot of people. Like they just make records they want to make and they figure out how to fund yeah. them and they bring in the people mm-hmm. that they want to use versus like what I guess, what I would imagine the older model is, which I think a lot of people really wanted to live, you know, like where it's like you play with people that are like legends. I got a little bit of that, but yeah, the way I got in that position was, Fuse liked what I did or he heard enough of stuff that he liked that he started calling me for stuff. Mm. But I wouldn't have even been on his radar as quickly had I not called him to play on my own stuff. And and I didn't yes. even, th- I didn't even really think about it past just those two tracks. Like I, I wasn't really thinking, Hey, maybe this will lead to gigs <laughs> with, you know, with whatever. And then I ended up, yeah. so, you know, I worked on him with this trio music uh, with mm-hmm. this project he was calling Keith. Um, and then FEMA couldn't do a torsos thing in Europe. It was like a month long thing. So I ended up doing that. And then I played cool. kind of in both projects for like four or five yeah. years. And, okay. and um, well, what, like what years did you start with doing the torsos stuff? Was uh, that, with that? 2004, about? 2004, okay, 2005. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, cause my friend was the first drummer in the band. Um, did, did Fuse ever tell you about a bass player named Timo? He was the original bass player in the Torsos. Well, like when they started, Fuse was in New England and my friend Al Pahanish was the drummer the, at Berkeley. So this was like late 80s. And, um, and then the, it shifted and he moved to New York. And I, like, so in 90, like I would play like the old Diddy factory with him. And it was FEMA, me, him, John Medeski. It was pre-Sedonic playing percussion. And um wow. and a few different singers and um but yeah so like yeah I guess the torso has been around for a long time but um yeah so but yeah you and I like definitely missed each other like as far as like when we would have crossed paths in, in, in the clubs and, and stuff yeah so um, that was but yeah that, but I, I sorry go ahead no I was gonna say like that that was basically <laughs> the that was sort of the vessel for how I kind of got into other stuff with people yeah. in New York, like through Fuse, I met Vernon. Um, actually, yep. like my best friend is like this techno artist. He had given Vernon like a tape of my playing, like, but I didn't actually meet Vernon as like, okay, this guy's a musician until Fuse put us yeah. together in a playing situation where it was like me and Nikki Glaspie were like backing him for something in Boston and Fuse played with us a little bit. And then, you know, I met other people and it kind of came from yeah. that one thing. Um, that's yeah, that's cool. I heard about I heard your name originally through indirectly through Nikki because she's friends with Ira, who yes. Ira, Ira was asking me. He's like, you know, this cat Steve Jenkins, and um, yeah, so it was <laughs> probably around that time. So, um, but yeah, I heard very good things, and you know, Nikki Nikki's a badass. So you know, if she says somebody's good, I I trust her. So yeah, um, she's she's great. So you've been kind of back and forth between New York and LA for a while. Um, were you out here? So you were out here when the whole thing kind of started, right? Like the uh, COVID shutdown thing? Or? <clears throat> Not exactly. It was it was started when I was in New York. I, I flew out here April 1st or 2nd. Okay. I pl- so basically, I've been working in L.A. since when I was touring. So like straight out of Berkeley, I dropped out. I was on the road and started doing gigs out here. You know, West Coast runs, but we'd always do gigs in L.A. And... So throughout the 90s with every artist I worked with, and then when I started transitioning out of jazz and the pop, and I was doing t- a lot of TV, which was out here, 
And, um, and, you know, my initial thoughts, the first time I came here, it was like snowing on the East coast and I, you know, get out of LAX and it's like palm trees and like degrees. And I'm like, Oh man, fuck the East coast. I want to live out here. And then after a while I got a taste of like Hollywood and I was like, yeah, I don't really want to live here. But then I started coming out here again. I don't know how many years ago, just for doing program, mostly programming work. Cause most of the producers out here who use me, they already have their like first called drummers. And it's just, you know, they're like, hey, well, if, you're, if I know you're living here eventually, like when so-and-so is not available, I have to play drums on something. But, uh, and I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. And I remember when I first moved to New York, it was the same thing. It just happened organically. Like I was not a first call drummer. I mean, I had the gigs I had, but as far as recording, basically the first, like I'll call it my first break, like the first really big record I played on was because Steve Ferroni wasn't available. And he was that producer's first call. And um, I mean, I, I could have been that guy's like second or third call, like not second. I could have been his like fifth call because he didn't really know me. But I somebody recommended me, and after the session, he was like, "Hey, man, you know, that's when he told me. He said, I just I'm gonna keep it real with you. You were not my first call. Ferroni was, and he said, but you came highly recommended, and it was it was a charts thing. He said you, you you read it, you played the track great. I'll definitely like call you first in the future for shit. So um, so yeah, that that happened. And um, that's how I got a lot of work, just just by being around and people knowing they could call me. So I figured now that I'm out here more, and that was the plan. Oh, that's that's how I kind of got sidetracked. So I was out here more and more, and I have a friend here that's done really well as a pop writer producer, and he's got a couple places, and he's got one place in the in the Hollywood Hills where I usually will stay when I'm out here, and um, it's a really great convenient location. Well, being in the hills isn't that great because Ubers don't want to pick me up a lot. But um, but it's 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 great for working in towns. And um, so, but I would mostly be in New York and just come out here a few times a year. And I've been wanting to spend more and more time out here. And you know, you you live in New York. You know, New York's not what it was. And it, um, after a while, I was like, why am I living in New York? because most of what I loved about the city is not there anymore. Most of my New York musician friends are either out here in Nashville. And, mm. um, and it's like most of the work I do, I'm programming at home and whatever drum sessions I'm doing, most of those, it's just me and an engineer. They're very, they're, it's like kind of the exception, not the rule anymore where I'm in a room with a whole band tracking live. That doesn't happen that often. And for that, I can always fly into New York when I want to do that. Mm. So um and then yeah things started getting serious with, with my girl and around january like i was out here for nam and then i stayed for a month and just kind of got some stuff from the place in west hollywood and brought it to her place and the plan was i was going to be back and forth all year so like fully by coastal um and then i was going to be out here for april. she was going to be in new york in march i was going to be out here in april i told her not to come we agreed to it's that's when the shit started popping off with covid in march okay. so she didn't come and then i was going to wait because they were saying oh if you're in new york you shouldn't leave new york but all my friends were like no you need to get the fuck out of new york so um and you couldn't even get masks then so she fedexed me a mask because she had some extras and um yeah i flew out here the flight flight was empty and um, yeah, so I've been out here since early April. So as far as like the way this is like kind of inevitably affecting everyone's livelihoods, 
Like, what do you think? Like, this this isn't really a fair question to ask anybody because no one really can see around what's happening. But what do you think is going to happen with with music? Is it have you seen anything on your end that's like has it been affected at all? Or are you still finding shit? To, are you still working on? I stuff mean, I'm or? I'm still busy. It's I mean, the budgets aren't what they were, and I'm doing a lot of shit for free right now or on spec because people are like, hey, how much do you need? And I'm used to when I stopped touring, I just. I knew going into session work full time that the golden age of like this, you know, the, the wrecking crew era, that shit's long gone. Like where you're just back to back in the studio all the time. Um, that's even like the le- studio legends. They don't have it like that anymore. It just doesn't exist. So that's one reason I, I kind of like lean into programming a little harder than I, I was always programming, but I, I got into that deeper and also to get some production work. Um, but I knew that, that, that there were going to be ebbs and flows in the session world. So even programming in addition to drumming and doing production remixes and other shit, I just got used to the, to the fact that I'm going to have, it's, you know, it's going to be feast or famine a lot. So I just, mm-hmm. when I make it, I put it away as much as possible. Save gotcha. it. And so there, the, every year there are like leaner months. So, I mean, I had one year, like 2016, I think it was where I couldn't believe it. I was like, I have had no downtime. I've been turning down work, which is rare. Like, I mean, turning down high paying work. It's, it's one thing to just turn down shit. That's just like, you're too busy and they're not paying enough or it's, or, but like, I, I was like, I, it was the, it was the first year in years where I didn't have to like dip into savings every once in a while to pay my bills. Cause usually that's what I do. I just have everything set to auto pay. So and whatever, whenever I have money coming in, it just sits on sits in savings. And every once in a while, I have to dip into my savings if it's if, if I if it's a month where I don't have any income coming in. So, and that's I mean, I'm always busy, but it's not always stuff that's paying me immediately. And um, mm-hmm. so I was just treating this like this, but I also thought this was just going to be a few months, but it's clearly going to go on longer. So, um, it's so yeah, I still have you know I'm busy, but not like the income I'm basically been living off of savings except I have been getting some money coming in, but it's from old shit. Cause that's a whole other thing is like, you know, trying to get paid. So, um, but as far as like high paying session work right now, there's nobody's throwing big budgets my way right now. Um, and everybody I talked to, I just talked to somebody else. I won't mention his name, but I'm sure you know him. Um, he, he's a pretty well-known guy. And, um, as an artist himself, not so much a side man. And he, he's always been available to do session work and I've gotten him on sessions cause he's like, yeah, people never think to call me for sessions, but I'm happy to do them. And now he was like, yeah, man, I just went on Instagram and I, I posted if you want lessons or sessions, like call me, I'll work with your rates. And I think a lot of people never knew that he was down for that stuff. And he said, he said, he's kind of working his ass off right now. But, um, but even with that, the budgets aren't, you know, he's having to work with, except for like trust fund people or people that are lucky enough to have a good paying gig that's considered essential where they haven't stopped working. Most people just don't have the funds. So, um, but yeah, so for programming, it's still happening and I'm doing a lot more collaboration now than usual because a lot of us have, have a little more downtime. Um, but playing drums, um, I don't know. You know, I usually do any live drum stuff in New York. And even if I were back in New York right now, I'm not trying to go into any commercial studios, even though, you know, it's 
like I do a lot of work at Mission Sound, and I don't know if you know Oliver, the owner of Mission. He's a really close friend, but uh, you know, just he's got a family, and I just just for safety purposes, I don't think it's a great idea to to be in a room play like playing drums with a bunch of other people right now in the room. So, um, but yeah, so I, like this is the longest I've gone in a long time without playing a drum kit. So, oh, wow. um, so, but it's cool. Like I said, I, I'm still doing a lot of, I just, I call myself a rhythm maker now because it's like, I, sometimes I'm playing real drums. Sometimes I'm programming drums and more often than not, it's, it's a mixture, but lately it's just programming. And, um, but so for me and all my, so my friends who are drummers that have home studio setups there, it's the same thing. They're not making great money, but they're busy. Um, and, but for like people that exist on live stuff for them, it's pretty fucked up right now. Like, um, I, I have a friend who he does, he's a side man on some pretty big tours. Like the kind of tours that'll go out like with like a hundred people on the crew and like, you know, cause it's, they're playing arenas and these giant stages getting set up every, like every day. And, um, you got it. Yeah. And they're out for like a year or two years. And like, he is like, I don't know when I'm going to work again. He was like, are people ever going to feel safe going to concerts anymore? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure they will, but it probably won't be anytime soon. So for, yeah, for, for people like that, they're scrambling and trying to figure out like, and a lot of people, the good thing is a lot of my friends who just do live stuff, they're all getting unemployment now. Um, so, which is something, but uh, yeah, I don't know how long this shit's going to drag, drag on. And yeah, I don't know. I think a lot more people who never did remote recording are all getting hip to it now because they don't have a choice. Um, do you know Andy Hess? I do. I do. Bass player. So yeah. Andy's an old friend and like we, we used to play together back in the day when I did a lot of stuff, a lot of live stuff. And we just reconnected like in the past year and he was saying he doesn't have a home recording rig. And I'm like, dude, it's, like it's easier and less expensive now than ever to do it. Like just come over anytime. I'll walk you through my pro tools rig. It's very simple. And um, so there are a lot of people like that who's, who've said like, yeah, I got to get into this at some point. And I actually should hit him up and just to say hi, but I'm wondering if he finally got it. Cause I, um, a lot of friends have been hitting me up and saying, Hey, where do you get your recording gear? Like, or you post something like, can, can you give me the contact information? Yeah. So a bunch of people are, are getting like, who are now just, just getting their first like home recording rig on their laptops. And yeah, that's, then, but for live stuff, that's it, crazy. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. For live stuff. I think when people there, I think we'll, we'll see like virtual concerts where like bands will feel safe being in a room together with like limited crew and they'll do like live broadcasts where they'll find a way to monetize it in a way that will make it worth it for people to pay to see it. Um, yeah, I think but, that's going to have to happen at some point. I mean, what, what's your experience been like? Cause you, you've been, you, well, cause you do both. You, you, you do sessions and you, and you play live. Yeah, I've been okay. So it's it's interesting because um, one thing that I find really interesting about you is like you kind of made the move from doing like the live thing to just doing studio stuff. And, um, you know, I guess on my end, it's always been like a hybrid. And when I moved out, when I moved out here, because I've been doing remote work for a while. And um, I would say, at this point, I'm 
probably like, the only thing I really don't have is like a fretless, but I can get just about any bass sound anyone would want, you know, like I, I got modern shit. I got vintage shit. Um, I've got decent preamps. I know how to like do different things. And uh, so it's like something I've, I've had at my disposal for a long time and, you know, it's been really helpful, but um, last year without going into it, cause I haven't really talked about it much on this thing, but, and, and even, even really that much in public, even though there's lots of people that like friends that know, but like I had like a really shitty touring experience that involved chasing money down and which I'm sure I everyone think has. You, you, po- you posted, is that the thing you posted about where the tour got canceled like early on into the tour? Yeah. That's something. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Um, but okay. So like, if I'm being honest, that was a moment where there was the tour part, there was the components of that situation that really bothered me, but I was also kind of realizing I don't know if I really want to tour all the time anymore, or I don't know if it's really something I want to do unless it's at a certain level, you know? And like, yeah, this is, this was with like great players. Like I guy, remember, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but it was like, yeah. so I'm kind of in this place now where it's like, you know, I don't want to quit music, but I definitely am trying to figure out how to move into a different realm with it. And so there's a lot of stuff to, think about with that. And so my approach to entering this year prior to COVID was mostly like, all right, let's just, let's just like, you know, be open to what's going to come, but let's really think about, um, like, this is me giving myself the pep talk. Like, let's, let's just figure out like a way, let's figure out some shit, how to like move into something else, like making tracks, like composition Mm -hmm. programming. And you know, it, it, I'm sort of rudderless with that stuff because I do feel like sometimes, the way it's worked for me is like, as soon as I feel like, yeah, I'm committing to doing this, I'll get a call for some playing shit. And it's like that Godfather three shit. Like once, you know, once I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. And so being in the moment that we're in now, it is a little bit weird from an existential standpoint. Like I teach and that's been helping me with bills and stuff like Skype lessons. And I have some some education stuff and I do remote sessions, but yeah, going forward, I'm trying to figure out like what I want to do because, cause you know, I'm, I can make good tracks, but I haven't really taken it into the arena yet. So it's like, you know, I've, I've gotten the people to say shit like, like people have given me feedback like, yeah, you should do some shit with this. And it's like, yeah, cool. How? So I'm sort of rethinking all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, my advice, and this is something I wish I, I had known a long time ago. Um, is because I I've worn so many hats and like I'll hear from people that haven't really heard me since we were at Berkeley together. And they remember me as like a fusion head, like a chops drummer, like right. before it was called gospel chops, whatever. Like, um, <laughs> I was chops. that guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and then like when I, and I did a bunch of touring in like the fusion and jazz and then eventually smooth jazz and then eventually like mainstream pop. And it's like, if I just stuck it out in any one of those areas, you know, after 30 years, if you do good work, you're going to be like, you're that guy in that arena. And then, but I've just jumped from thing to thing to thing to thing. And like, it was it really when I, when I kind of gave up the live thing for the most part, even when I first got into session work, it took me a minute to kind of figure out what I was doing because I was doing a lot of production and I was just making tracks to make tracks just because I felt inspired to do it. I was getting all this gear 
always inspired by the electronic shit I was hearing. And I had friends that were getting major label deals, like Dorn is one of them. You know, like mm-hmm. when when the electronic thing was really big, every major label had an electronic division. And a few of those friends were like, you should put this shit out. And I was like, well, I don't know. It's not, I don't have any top line shit. And they're like, it's cool. It's just cool vibey shit. Just put it out. And if I just lean into that, that would have gone somewhere. Somebody, and this is the thing that I've learned is if you just do something like, I've always been a bit of a control freak where I kind of feel like I have to see 10 moves ahead and I have to know exactly what the plan is going to look like. But life doesn't work like that. You know what I mean? There's so many dots that connect that are like outside of your control. And like when I look back at like the dots that have connected for me, I never would have predicted some of the places like I've ended up and the people I've ended up working with. And if I had tried to do that, it never would have happened. It was, it it was just, I was like just focused on doing what I was doing. And then like a certain like door opened up organically somehow. And, um, and so I think if you, I've kind of gotten good now. It's like, and I'm not really inspired to Adam was like, you should make when we were talking, you know, you should make another record like that. It's like, if it's organic, I'll do it. Cause at the time that was an organic thing. I wanted to do it now. That's not really where my, my head's at. But, um, I've found since then, I just decide what it is I want to do and I just lean into it and then things kind of take care of themselves. You know what I mean? And it's never something that I can predict. It's just, um, I don't know if, I'm imagining you you've done some work on yourself, some inner work. Oh yeah. And yeah, absolutely. if you read a lot, yeah. So a lot of the books after you read enough growth books and they're all essentially like slightly different articulations of a lot of the same themes. And a lot of it stems back to, to Buddhist themes and like mindfulness and the concept of, I guess it's like more of a Zen Buddhist thing, like Taoism and Buddhism, but like where, like if I go to like pick up this glass of water and drink it, if I had to like actually say, okay, I'm going to flex this particular muscle and then I'm going to like put my fingers on the cup, like you're going to drive yourself crazy if you're trying to like, like in charge, like consciously of every subtle, a lot of shit needs to go on internally, like neurologically for you to lift that glass of water up and drink it. And we take that for granted, but that's just kind of, that's, that's, we don't think about it. It's all become second nature. But, uh, you know, if you watch a kid trying to lift a glass of water for the first time or tie their shoes for the first time, they have to put a lot of thought into it. And after a while, it's like it's, we don't have to think about that. We can just, like, let nature do its thing. And we just set our intentions. And it's kind of like that with life. Like, if, if you kind of have to get out of your own way and just – it doesn't mean just be aimless, and, but just decide what you want to do like go about it in, in an intelligent way and be prepared, like be well prepared to do that. But be, op- be open to the unknown because that's really like what's magic about the universe. It's like, and it's like what's magic about playing music with other people. It's that fifth element thing. It's that mm-hmm. the, the synergy that comes of you making music with another person. And then what happens when, when you're both making music together. And, and that's what the world is collectively. Like there's all these unknowns and that, and the unknown, like really that's where the magic happens is, is in the unknown. So, um, and when I, when I used to focus on trying to know and see ahead and say, okay, I need to do this and I need to have all these di- like ducks lined up. Like I would do shit, but I was wasting a lot of energy and not necessarily ending up where I wanted to go. And then when I just kind of got out of my own way, 
and focus on the shit I needed to be focusing on and stop trying to control everything, then just do, like cool shit would, would occur. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I was going to ask you this because I know we've, we've talked about like the tech, the, the, the connection between like, like the blessing and curse of facility, but also how that connects to like outlook and how you feel connected to music. Like, do you think the, the need to control, do you think having lots of chops um, or developing and wanting to maintain facility like, like, do you think that's rooted uh, like maintaining facility like that? Is that rooted in wanting to control stuff or like have the variables be kind of a certain way? Um, I, I think it could be. I think that's more of a person person answer because for me a lot of that was it it took on different things because when I started playing drums I I had never heard somebody with like crazy chops play before you know I'd heard Buddy Rich when I was a kid and this is way Mm pre-internet but you know I I heard some stuff but like I remember the first time I went to a clinic and I saw Simon Phillips play and then through him I discovered Billy Cobham and I'm sitting in front of these drummers that are playing I'm like 11 12 13 years old and they're playing shit that I just I can't even understand but I'm like this is cool I want to be able to do this and I remember like you know going anytime I could see a clinic I'd record the clinics listen to the cassette tapes and then I would like get vinyl and like put my finger on the vinyl slow it down try and try and figure out what they're doing you know transcribe come up with my own very once I figured out like what what something was I would come up with my own like variations of that thing and then you know you kind of develop your own stuff from there but um I remember like the the the, like the different phases where like I didn't even know what 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 they were playing and then I remember like when I could start to hear it and understand it but I still couldn't play it and then I remember when I could actually play it and then I remembered where I got so deep inside what the, what the thing was or the things were that then I was kind of incorporating that into my playing. And um, mm. so for a lot of it, it was just wanting to be able to do, to be able to do that and to be able to express myself and play with, with the levels of musicianship that they were playing with, with other musicians. And so there was that. But then it also became, I noticed that, especially by the time I got to Berkeley, where there, it was like almost like a jock type thing where like all of a sudden you're the cool guy. You're, you're the jock when you can play that way. And I never, you know, I didn't really experience that because I went to a high school where the music programs were not really a big deal, but the sports were. And then, but it was like my senior year in high school where I was gigging in a bunch where I started noticing people like treating me differently when they knew that I was doing that shit. But, it, but when I was at Berkeley, all of a sudden it was a whole other level where it was like an ego boost. And, um, and that, and then all of a sudden, like, because I had grown up like a very like depressed kid, all of a sudden this became another way of like avoiding depression and avoiding, just avoiding dealing with shit. And, um, and so that all of a sudden became a thing that like, that was like a drug in itself. Like the, the feeling you get when you can play that shit and the way people treat you. So like validation. Yeah, definitely validation. And, um, but, and also just, it is a feeling of, it's, it's very empowering when you know that you can like pick up your instrument and really own it to some degree. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was that, there were a lot of things. And, um, and it was also a way to connect because like whatever interpersonal skills I lacked, like 
when musicians that I really respected would hear me play and want to want to make music with me, it was it was a it was a, just a very humanistic thing of connecting because that would open the door to like interpersonal relationships. And um and you know you've been doing this long enough, you know it's so much of this is about the hang. Like you know yep. there's so much of so there's that whole thing and um so. I think I associated consciously or, or unconsciously a lot of like things with that facility on the instrument. And I had to s- slowly let go of that and, you know, find healthier ways to, to feel those things. And, and then kind of come to terms with the fact that like, I was kind of going against myself. I was going in two different directions. Like part of me really doesn't enjoy that, that type of drumming anymore at all. And, um, but there, I think there was still some part of my ego that, w- that wouldn't let go of that. And I would kind of be hard on myself because I don't maintain those types of chops anymore. Um, and I don't even think in those terms of, like, I don't relate to the instrument that way anymore. Like, I see the role of drums in particular as very differently than I used to think of the role of drums. So, and for a while, I was really going two different directions with that. And definitely, like, there was some like I was out of alignment with myself. And then one, I started to kind of just have some like serenity around that and just come like make my peace with the fact that like that sense of self, that's not really who I am anymore and it's okay. And, um, and I still respect, you know, I know, and you know, like what kind of work and dedication it takes to, to get to that level. So um, I respect it. And it's a beautiful thing for anybody that's willing to have that kind of focus and dedication. But um, it's, to me, that's not really what music's about. And mm. I mean, there are always exceptions, you know what I mean? Like, but I think most of the people that are chops players, they're missing the, the, the depth. Um, I agree. I got lucky. I got lucky because, um, you know, I've had, I've, I've wrestled with that shit a little bit, but um I was lucky because the people who were really my mentors with playing, like uh, you mentioned Dave Dyson, like that dude's my mentor. I studied with him when I was like 17. Like I basically, it's really weird how that worked out because um, I was graduating high school, living color had just put out stain and they were doing an in-store record store thing at this place in Georgetown called Camp Mill records. And, um, so I went cause like, you know, I lo- that does like one of my favorite bands and like Dyson had just been in bass player magazine and um, he was hanging with Will because they played in a band together. And yep. And so um, I, I was going to go to Berkeley in the fall. And so I like kind of bothered him like, yo man, can I, do you teach lessons? Like, do you, you know, would you want to teach? Cause I'm trying to like, you know, be prepared before I go up there. And um, I'd already done like five week program and shit the summer before. So I kind of knew some of it, but I, I hadn't really studied with anyone like that. And so he's, he's been like a really great friend for years, but he basically without telling me very much, always made sure I was like working on pocket stuff. Like he'd be like, you know, it's cool if you want to work on both, but like, here's this bootsy thing you should check out. Here's the Don Blackman record. You need to listen to this. And he, he always set me on a path, like just in terms of having balance with both. And then, you know, fuse fuse definitely threw stuff at me a lot, man. And it was, wasn't always easy, but 
he I remember one time like we played and he's like, you know, you think that's the most interesting part of what you do and it's not. And I was like, hmm, okay. And um, you know, he's he's right. I think bass and drums, those are the instruments that most people on a on a primal level relate to, you know, like that's yeah. the shit they're yeah. kind of looking for. They're not really looking to be like impressed in the way that like other things are, whether whether shit is impressive to us in an insular way or not. So yeah. I think like, I mean, if you ask people like what their favorite drum beats are, you can just see it. You can watch a room full of people, someone spinning records. And it's like, what do people freak out to, you know, freak out to yeah. Billy Jean. They'll freak out to shit that they can sing back to. And it's the same thing with bass lines. So it's like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that information is not really like sacred or nor is it hard to figure out, but it's like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I had that phase where it's like, man, can I, play that bass solo on port of entry like Jocko did like can I do that shit and um so I, I feel like I still want to be able to do that stuff but I don't really look at music through that paradigm yeah. anymore but I guess yeah. the thing the thing I'm trying to change um and this is kind of like where I'm at with everything is like you know like I still want to make my weirdo music but as like a hireable musician like I kind of want to just you know add what it needs. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of stuff there, you know, and it, you know, at this, at this point, the facility thing or the, the arms race with chops, I mean, I can still do a lot of that stuff, but it's not, it's not really driving the yeah. bus at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. And, um, are there a few things that you said and I'm like losing track. I was going to respond to a couple things, but yeah, Tyson just to go back. He was, he was the, f- there were like three bass players. I mean, more than that, but three that I worked with regularly when I was in Boston. It was first Dyson and then a guy named Skip, and I can't remember his last name. But I don't know if he was still in Boston by the time you got there. Um, and then Carl Carter. I don't know if you know Carl. No, he but, is. Uh, yeah. So, and there were, there were, I'm leaving out a bunch of great bass players. Uh, you know, JD, you must know uh, JD. He's more of known as a metal bass player. He plays with uh, Black Label Society with Zach. Oh, um, I don't know him personally, but I know that dude. Yeah, uh, I, I, you, I know you who he is. Meet him. You guys should meet. He's really cool, dude. And you wouldn't you wouldn't know it because he's he's like famous in the metal world. But like you know, he was in the sheds. We were all like practicing. We all like James Brown in the Jungle Groove. Like came out when we were all there, and like he was you know he's deep into that shit pocket shit too. But um, cool. but yeah, Dyson. I you know there's you know the whole thing about play with people that are better than you. Mm-hmm. Like I had a decent pocket by the time I got to Berkeley, but like, you know, being on the bandstand with him, like he just, you know, he really laid that shit down. Um, and it's like, you could really, and the same thing I played with Marcus Miller once years ago, it was the same thing, like such confidence, but like not, not a check me out confidence, but just like so confident and like in the group, like just deep, really laying it down in the pocket where if you're not there with them, like it's, you're, you're going to know it. Everybody's going to know it. So it's like, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm articulating it the right way, but I just remember the first time I played with him and just feeling the sound coming out. I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. I need to step up into this. And, um, yeah, as a drummer, you know, that's, that's, that's priceless, you know, and that's the kind of shit that, that you, they can't teach in a class. You know I mean? You actually have to be playing with people. To, to really grow into that, that thing. So, um, but there was something else you said that I wanted to, to touch upon and I don't remember what it was, but, uh, 
anyway, but yeah, you said a lot of good shit. So, but that, but there was something else, and I remember what it was now. But about changing what you do and your, uh, it was about how people relate to bass and drums. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah. If you go down social media, it's the same thing. I say that about drums too. Like uh, in my feed, it'll be like, like crazy chops drummer, crazy chops drummer, crazy chops drummer, crazy chops drummer. But then somebody will post like Steve Jordan is playing two and four, and like you know that's that's the shit where people react more emotionally to. And um, that's, I think that gets to what you're saying about the primal thing of what people really relate to. And not just not like non-musicians definitely, but, but, and I remember discovering that playing my first time playing Newport jazz festival. And I was playing with Global Washington Jr. And we were going on after the Michelle Camilo trio with like, it was like Dave Weckl, Michelle Camilo and probably Anthony Jackson. And, um, and then, like, I think after us was, like, like Dennis Chambers was playing with somebody. Either way, I was like, man, like, I have chops, but, like, no. Like, these get, there's nothing I can say on the kit that's going to, like, you know, come close to, to like, their, like, either one of those guys, like, significantly deeper chops than mine. And, um, and maybe they weren't that much deeper. Part of that was also imposter syndrome. You know what I mean? Like, I just remembered thinking like, these are the guys that I went to their clinics. So how can I compete with that? So, but I also looked out at the audience and I was like, everybody out there is smoking weed and drinking beer. And most of them are not musicians. You know, it's like, it's at a Newport jazz festival. It was like almost like on a beach from what I remember. And um, I was like, I bet these people just want to groove. So that's when I did some chop shit, but then I just, and I had, that's when I had my, my sampler and my pads. And I just kind of went into like a DJ type of thing where I was like, just each pad had like, and I timed everything. So everything was, it was pre time stretching technology. I would just tune every sample. So like seamlessly the tempos moved. So I just kind of just was like the greatest breakbeat hits. Like that was my solo. Just, you know, my left hand was triggering like the Apache loop or whatever, a slide in the family stone or something. And then I'm playing kick, snare and hat with my other hand. And, um, and then like, um, I remember like all of a sudden it's like, wow, I'm getting a better reaction. Like, and it's not like I played a better drum solo than Dennis Chambers and Dave Winkle, but like all these people who are not drummers are like giving me a standing ovation because they all got up and danced for my drum solo. And, um, and so like that, that was like a breakthrough moment for me where it just, and then over the years, I remember like playing other jazz festivals and, like it would be like the musician's girlfriend or boyfriend would come and be like, Hey, I'm not even into this shit, but like, this is the first time I didn't go like, like take a cigarette break during the drum solo. Like I actually was enthralled with it or whatever. And um, yeah. And it's because I stopped trying to play what I thought was impressive musically and just play something that people could feel. So, um, but yeah, so that's, there's definitely something to be said for that. And uh yeah, sorry, it was a little bit of a tangent. But. No, no, it was, it was a good. It was a good tangent. So, do you feel? Do you feel now like there's? Is there like a, a dichotomy between? Was there a dichotomy in the beginning when you were going from like programming and playing, or was it pretty much like were you taking the same considerations into how you would construct beats? Like, did you? Was it? Oh, did you? I mean, I definitely. I got. It definitely got simpler, but you know, in the early days of programming, you'd hear these records where there's like. People, like when people just went crazy and would have like five different drum loops stacked and then programming on top of that. 
And right. I remember like doing, doing tours where I had to recreate that shit. And it was like, okay, I need three different Hyatts, three different snare drums. And then, and then I remembered like, I don't remember who it was, but I saw a drummer. It might've been Fuji or somebody that just like, they went out and they just, they were recreating a record that all was programming and he just played a pocket. And I was like, Oh, duh. Shit. Why didn't I think of that? Like, I don't have to play all that bullshit. Just all that programming. <laughs> like listen through like all the the superfluous shit and just like what's the main pocket statement what's the main groove that's like coming through and you strip out all the extra shit and it's like oh that's all i really need to play and so that's when i stopped having like you know a bunch of different hi-hats and standards on my kid it's like i don't really need all that shit to say it wow. so um and so i and same thing with my programming. Like I started realizing like, I don't need to like layer this many things when I'm programming. And that's, that's kind of like my whole life though. It's like, um, there, I don't know if you've ever checked out the book essentialism, but it's, it's, no. Who wrote it? it's, it's, I forget the guy's name, but I'll, I'll look it up afterwards and I'll, I'll send you a link. But I remember hearing him on a podcast talking about it. And then I got the audiobook, and I was like, man, he's articulating a lot of things that I've been kind of living over the years where just, trying to take away and like like fewer better ingredients like for with anything like just like fewer but better ingredients musically or like your wardrobe or literally ingredients for a dish like when i first got into cooking i went crazy and i had this huge spice rack and i had to, like i wanted to like mix everything in and it's like no nah, i think like a really great meal sometimes it's like fewer ingredients and um same thing with music like with, with programming and production, but yeah, it's, I mean, I'll still layer sounds if, if that's like the aesthetic, if I'm like trying to give a producer what they want, where, where it needs to be like five kicks sampled. But as far as like the parts and like layering too many like counter rhythms, sometimes I think that just gets in the way and it takes away from the musical message. So I've simplified my programming, but even before that, I remembered when I would be programming tracks and it came time to like do drum fills, I was like finding myself really not doing a lot of fills or if it was a fill, it was not, it was like an anti-fill fill. You know what I mean? It was just a groove fill where I just maybe added like, if it's don't, cat, unt, cat, unt, cat, I'll just do a three and four on the fourth bar going into the chorus, don't, cat, at, at, you know, like that. So yeah. it's, bar it's barely a fill, but it lets you know the chorus is coming. So shit like that. Yeah, you're marking it. Yeah. And it's like, or I'll do a mute or something, but it's like when I, whereas I know if I'd been in the studio playing drums on that track, I would have been trying to throw all this other shit in there. It's like, no, nah, shit doesn't really, it doesn't really help the music that maybe helps my ego. But, um, so yeah, programming made me rethink how I play stuff. And, um, and also just, um, when I first got into programming, I think I was, talking about this with adam like people didn't want to hire me just to program drums that wasn't really a thing i mean it kind of was in the 80s um like jimmy bray lauer was a guy that just programmed drums for everybody but in general that wasn't something at least in the new york studios the people that i knew that i was seeing doing a lot of programming were mostly keyboard players that were programming full tracks for people and so that's when i was like all right i need to get more gear so i can you know i'm not a keyboard wizard, but I can play enough that with the sequencer, I can make it sound like I'm a real keyboard player. 
So people right. would hire me to do full, full tracks. And as a result, I ended up making even more money. But that eventually led to people wanting, there were people that didn't even know I was a drummer for a long time that, that I was making a lot of money from just programming tracks and doing remixes for. And then I remember what, like slowly they would find out that I'm a drummer and then they'd be, oh, you want to play drums on this? And then that led to people hiring me just to do drum programming. And nowadays it's mostly they'll have me do both. But through, through, through the production thing, because I was talking about just like thinning out my drum programming, but when I was producing full tracks, even more so I realized like I'm seeing the, the bigger picture, not just, just like do I need this many like loops stacked and different like percussion parts programmed. I'm seeing the full track, like how, like how much percussion do I need, period. And mm. um, especially if there's like a strummy acoustic guitar playing something, do I really need a 16th? Do I need a hat or a shaker or something in that kind of higher register playing 16th? Because I already have an instrument playing that. And um, somebody actually was Andy has asked me if I wanted to do some gigs with um, Larry Carlton. This is pre COVID. And he's, I was like, yeah, man, I'd love to, you know, and I don't really tour anymore, but that would be just a fun hang and love playing with Andy and, you know, I grew up listening to Larry Carlton. Yeah. So he sent me some links to them playing with, with a different drummer. And like every song, the drummer was playing 16th on the hat. It's, and it's a thing. It's like, oh, I don't do that. I don't do that. I literally don't do that. I have a thing about, I won't play 16th on the hat. It, it, unless it's like two bands, like a specific kind of disco-y thing. Um, but I'm like all my favorite shit, with the exception of Funky Drummer, where Clyde's playing 16th, pretty much every like heavy like James Brown thing, if there are 16s, it's a kibasa, a shaker, a tambourine. Like I just, whenever I hear a drummer playing 16s on the hat, unless they have like that, like Gadsden magical thing, to me, it just sounds like cluttery. So, um, but I kind of got to that through, through producing and seeing like, you don't need, like, I just feel like drums are such a heavy thing that if I want something else, like, I just feel like less is more with drums. And um, when I play, like I play with tribal tech and I remember I had a double pedal and Gary Willis was like, don't do that. Cause every time he would start doing like a 16th note ostinato, I would automatically go into my Billy Cobb and with my feet oh, right, right. and he'd look at me. <laughs> yeah. And he'd be like, stop it. And I'd be like, no man, I'm, I'm going with you. He's like, no, I just like play around that, like weave around it, but with the, with the important parts, I don't remember how he articulated it, but I remember like thinking he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> now I look back and it's like, no, you, it's like if, if, if the whole low end, like especially the drums, which are this like punchy thing are also going to it's, it's like, that's not sexy. You know what I mean? Like it stops <laughs> being in a groove at that point. It's, it's just like a fucking jackhammer. So yeah, getting into production made me see that, that like, I really like, I, I, and even with a kick drum, like I really like to, to leave as much space in between kick notes as possible because I'd rather have the bass, whether it's synth bass or, or real bass, upright or electric, the, the, let them play like the more 16th and like ghost note yeah. and shit. <clears throat> Those grooves are like moving a couch down steps. Like yeah. one, one dude is going to have the real control to steer it and someone else yeah. just has to like, you know, like the other, the other person, the other musician is going to have to agree to like be behind it and just support. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a good way of putting it. But, but yeah, so it's like, um, I feel with like drums now, like if somebody wants me to play like impeach the president, you know, 
like that. Yeah. I won't go bump 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 with the with the kick. I'll go bump bump cat, and with that sixteenth thing, I'll do it as a ghost note on the snare. Get to bump cat, and the thing is, when you're hearing that in a track, the human ear really won't differentiate, especially if the bass is playing bump bump bump. You know what I mean? And I feel like it just leaves so much more room, and it makes the like because the main thing is the drums are still gonna like whether I'm doing it as a snare ghost note or I'm playing it on a kick a little lighter as a ghost note, it, it, the, like it's not going to make that much of a difference. Like you're going to hear it and you're going to hear the same part, but I feel it just like the kick is one of those things where if there's too many kicks like next to each other, back and back, back to back, especially a 16th note apart, I just feel it just clutters the low end of the track a lot. So, mm. um, but that's something I arrived at through producing like non drum shit, just seeing like, um like everything it's kind of like the james brown thing if, if you listen to like those classic james brown records like you'll hear there's two different rhythm guitar parts one's a chordal like a, a chunky thing one is a single note rhythm then you've got the, the bass thing which is its own kind of syncopated thing you've got like the drum kit maybe percussion and then the horns are playing these like really syncopated parts too and then james's vocals because he sang like a drummer like very rhythmically and um and if you remove the harmonics from that, what you really have, it's almost like a, like a salsa percussion section with like the bongos against like the bongo bell, against the cowbell, against like the timbali cowbell, against the timbali part, and then the congas, and you have, or like whatever, you know, you add all these instruments up, they're all playing these counter rhythms that create this like rhythmic weave. And when you listen to those like classic James Brown records, you're getting a rhythmic weave through all these parts. And, um, and so getting into production, that's where I learned just rhythmically, um, at least for backbeat based music, which mostly what I do, it's like a lot of things can, you can think of as like playing the rhythm. And so I, I try and keep that in mind when I'm playing drums, like not trying to kind of cover all the rhythmic stuff in the highs, lows and mids, knowing that like it might be better if other instruments kind of cover some of that shit. Hmm. So um yeah so i and i think it's made me a much better drummer by like stripping out a lot of that shit from my playing yeah i've definitely gotten that feeling from like working on tracks like especially if i'm not really just doing bass you know like i've uh, there's definitely things where it's like that bass will be the last thing i do and it's like yeah there's really not there's not that much room for anything else than than this, you know? Um, but I, I actually came to that conclusion playing a lot of the muso stuff, man. Cause it's like, sometimes like music can be really complex, but like the bass really might have to be the least complex part of it. You know? Um, like I kind of came to that realization when I was playing a lot of famous parts in torsos. It's like, yeah, oh, there's, yeah, there's so much shit going on. Like he's really the one that's holding this whole thing together. So yeah, if I'm going to try to play more notes here, it isn't really going to work. Yeah. Theme is definitely an, an anchor type bass player. And, um, and there's something else that the contrast thing, because I hadn't played with theme in years. And like, I played with them a lot back in the day. And then when I, I did an Oz Noy record a few years ago, and one of the prerequisites was like, you got to do these bitter end gigs. And, and I didn't play in live at all really. So, but, 
I did, I did a bunch of those gigs and sometimes it was just organ trio. Sometimes he'd have bass and FEMA did a few of them. And, um, I hadn't played with FEMA in years and, you know, FEMA is such an understated, you know, FEMA as a person, you know, he's such an understated human and he's also an understated bass player, but there's a lot of depth to who he is. And there's a lot of depth to his playing, even though it's understated. And I remember we're playing one night and he was just like, really like, he's like, he's just kind of like not playing a lot of extra shit at all. And he did one fill, like one little bass fill at, in one song. And it was barely a fill. He just, he just like added something to the normal bass line, like just once. And it was just, it was super heavy. Like, you know what I mean? It was like, man, that sounded so badass. Even though, you know, a different bass player might've been playing something like that every bar. And I, I was, I've talked about this story hearing Charlie Drayton play where he didn't play with Herbie, where he didn't play any, barely any fills. And he did one medium busy fill the whole night and like the crowd lost their shit. Um, wow. Yeah. So yeah, there's something about that, of like the whole less is more thing that when you do, when you do decide to like do something, it makes a bigger statement. Yeah. There's, I like musicians um, a lot where you can't, you can't be sure if you've heard their full capabilities. My favorite drummers now are those are those drummers. That's not true. I know some drummers that really can only play what they play, and I love them for what they do. But but the drummers that I admire the most are the ones that that uh, they can do a lot more than they do. But they they just do what's needed. But they but it, like you said, it's not the stock shit. Um, right. It's very. Yeah, they 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 they're very present musically. Like they they never really phone it in. So um, who do you like? Like who are you? Who are you checking out? Um, somebody that I always go back to is Charlie Drake because Charlie's somebody that that is is to me very understated and um, and a lot of people will lump Charlie and Steve Jordan together, but to me they're they're very they're they're some obvious similarities, but they're very different musicians to me and um. Um, Charlie is, I don't know, it's just, he's just, it's just really deep and like, he'll surprise me. Like he produced this feel on the Apple record where he also played drums on it. And I was like, man, I would never guess like, this would be you doing this stuff. And I remember asking him how, like, how did you come up with these parts? And I forget the answer. And it was this now it's years since we've had this conversation, but it was like a very Zen Buddhist answer in that, uh, he was just talking. I don't remember how he articulated it, but it was just like, yeah, I just, you know, I just tried to like go in there with like really fresh ears. And when I heard the song, like what, what is the right thing for this? And as opposed to usually like you come in with your, like your rhythmic swatches, so to speak. You know what I mean? It's like, Oh, I'll do, like you said, I'll play shuffle here. I'll do this there. It's like there, there was none of that with him, with what he did on that record. But even when I hear him playing stuff where he is playing his stock, grooves, the shuffle, the halftime shuffle, the funk, the rock, whatever, it's, there's a presence there that, and I think that's the deeper thing with, with just human beings in general, you, you get around people that they're just really, really present and like they, they stripped away a lot of their bullshit. Um, same thing with there's certain musicians that are like that where, and that's the thing, like, why does it sound so much better with you know, talk about Billy Jean as like one of those beats. It's, you know, it's a, it's, that's the first beat I learned how to play when I was a little kid, you know, but why does it, why can one drummer play that and just makes you be like, holy shit, that feels good. And it's, it, that's that thing where, there, where you just, you bring all that depth 
to what you're playing and it's and it's and it's like you're you're really playing music as opposed to just repeating notes and wow. um and that's something i've been trying to get to more and more i mean i wasn't conscious it was happening automatically but now i've become conscious of it and i, and I, I try to like that's my goal is to whatever i'm doing it's really about that and about um it's beyond just serving the music it's, it's just about because really what and this is some more esoteric shit but like what is music you know what i mean like why 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 did we evolve to respond to music and to make music and like what what is what is it really about so for me it, it's just about um I don't know. It's, it's about, there's something, it's just expressing uh, like what it feels like to be alive. You know, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just, but it's that it's expressing it through that medium, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, so it's, I mean, that's a really overly simplistic way. There's a lot more to it than that, but if I had to like boil it down, that's kind of what I think of, of it as. And um yeah. And there's certain players where it's just like, it's, it's like, think of Jimi Hendrix, you know what I mean? Like he didn't have a lot of chops really, but like, you know, when, when he, when he would play his shit, like you were hearing him through the instrument, you know what I mean? So I think, I think that it's kind of that. And so my favorite musicians are the ones and like Charlie's drummer like that. Like when Charlie plays the drums, you're hearing him. And I mean, yeah, you also have to have a musical gift, but, um, but like Steve Jordan, you know, another, like, you know, somebody can play some really simple shit. You know, you can have like a guitar center drum off thing. You'll have like Terry Bozio, I don't know who all like whoever, like the chops dudes are now playing and it's great. And then Jordan will come out and we'll just play some pretty basic shit, but that's what's going to get the crowd screaming. And part of that is because it's just reverence because of who he is. But a lot of it is because the shit just feels really good. And, um, but I remember talking to somebody who used to play with him. There were, you, you ever hear of the 24th street bands? Yeah. That was like, that was like the pre Letterman band. It was like Hiram, Steve Jordan, Willie and Clifford Carter. So I, I've done a lot of sessions with Clifford and I was asking them about like, about Ralph McDonald actually, because Ralph McDonald was somebody like that. Like, like, for a long time, the sound of the radio was Ralph, for the drums, it was Ralph McDonald and Steve Gadd playing, or Ralph McDonald and Harvey Mason playing together. And Ralph is not really, wasn't a really chops heavy percussionist, but he would just like lift everything he played on. And um, I got to play with him once before he passed. And I remembered him sitting in with Grover and he was just playing a shaker or something. And I was like, holy shit, that feels so good, you know? And, I can play that 16 notes on the shaker part and pretty much any musician, drummer or percussionist or not can play that. But why does it feel so much deeper and the, the whole room feel, it just feels better to be in the room when he's playing it. Um, and I was talking to Clifford about that. And then he brought up Jordan and saying, he remembered like hearing Jordan warm up when they were doing some 24th street shit. He was like, man, why like Jordan's playing this, you know, the Billy Jean beat just don't oh, something really simple. It's like, why does it just feel so good when he plays that? And like, we were trying to get like, what is it about that? And Clifford articulated it way better than I can. I forget what he said. But it was something about that. It's just like, um, you're just, it's like certain people are able to kind of like, there's like no disconnect between like their humanity and the instrument. And like, that's, 
that was his theory. I could be like misstating it, but something about that. And I was telling Adam about how Gerald Beasley was saying something like we were talking about, like just personal growth and how that affects your playing and like really who you are as like, as you grow as a person, it'll grow on your instrument. And, and Gerald says something like, and nobody can play better than who they are. So that's um, like, a, that's a really great quote. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, so yeah, Charlie's a guy that I love for that, but I mean, I don't know, like all the obvious ones, like, like dad or, like Gad is somebody who can play some really simple shit, but just like make it feel really, really great. And, and he, I remember Hiram telling me he would go to like Mikel's back in the day and listen to Gad playing with stuff. And he was like, they would just play like lay on a groove for like a half hour. And he said like Gad could like dial up the intensity to a boiling point when he wanted to, without getting faster or louder. He just knew how to like dig in deeper without changing the dynamics or anything. Just like this, I don't know, just, he would just, it's, it's that like thing. You can't really say what it is, but, yeah. um, so yeah, all the, 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 my favorite players are the, are the, the ones that just really make you feel, you know, whatever that is. So, I mean, I, it's weird, man. Like there's a lot of stuff. Um, I listen to Justin, you know, like that's, that's the other thing. Like I found that when I was trying, like most of what I like listening to isn't, anything that inherently technical you know like it's yeah like if I'm, if I'm in my car like you know i mean i like you know there's like some progressive rock or metal shit where there's definitely you know you have to have some facility to make it work but at the end of the day it's really kind of groove oriented but i yeah. um i was listening to some acdc shit with phil rudd and i'm like man there's a reason why no cover band really sounds like them when they <laughs> play their music yeah. i mean this this yeah. shit's really really understated but like it really is kind of right where it needs to be. And it's, it's really yeah. simple, but it's not like dumb, simple. Um, like people okay. sort of think simple is like this awful word, but it's really not. But yeah. I was going to ask like, what do you, what do you think? Like, cause I feel like the word present gets used a lot. Like it gets used yeah. when it's like, when you're being social with people, um, it it's used as a way to describe like what kind of, commitment to the moment people have in their lives but like how can you tell like what's the real is there i mean like do you ever struggle with that like with with music like or how do you what do you recommend as far as like dialing dialing it in to get to that frequency where you're i think i would as a drummer i i was able to be it was easier for me to be in that flow state when i was playing every day because mm -hmm. whether i was playing chops heavy or not like I didn't have to think about like muscle memory shit. I didn't have to think about like what I'm doing with my four limbs while I'm playing because I just had so much facility. Now I might go for like weeks without picking up sticks because I'm doing a lot of programming and production in between when I'm sitting down and playing a kit. And if I'm playing for a few days in a row or a week in the studio, a couple of days into it, it's going to come back where it's just like, I don't have to think about it. But if, if it's like my first time playing a kit, I got to shake the rust off. And I actually have, it, I can't be as present because I have to be more mindful of like what my limbs are doing. So, um, that's, that's like a separate discussion that just the mechanics of playing drums and like keeping, keeping that muscle memory going to the point and, and stamina really, because it is a very physical instrument. But I think with any instrument, it's like that. If, if you're not playing it enough where you like, where you can't just relax into it, then you can't totally be in the moment. But, um, 
So when I was younger, before I even like thought about any of this stuff, I was able to, to like lock in and be pretty present um, in the music, but that wasn't necessarily because I was like some like heavy, like drum monk. I think it was because I was so like stunted in every other area of my life. <laughs> it was just like, I didn't have any of the usual distractions. I just like, I could just really show up for the music. Um, now, um, it's, I do sometimes if I haven't played in a while when I'm doing a session, I do have to think about it a little bit when I'm playing, which I don't love because to me that does take me out of it a little bit. But for the most part, um, I think I've made up for that in other areas where like, I really just hear the drums as a part of the production and um, that's what I'm there for. So and I did have a conversation with Charlie Drayton about this recently, asking about practicing. He said something about like, yeah, I'm not really inspired to, if I'm not making music, I don't even feel like picking up sticks today or something like that. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I've been for a while. Like I used to love to just sit down and play drums all day. And now like if there's, if I'm not making music, like why do I even want to play drums? Which that's kind of an extreme and maybe I'll, I'll eventually kind of find more of a middle way with that. But now it's like, I, and some of that also might be because of like tendonitis and back pain where it's, it actually hurts a little for me to play. Um, it's so I can't like be as like at ease in it, but there really is something about like, um, like I'm there for the music and not just, not just to play drums. So I think that is, what kind of keeps me keeps my presence dialed in even if even if like i lack the stamina so i have to like be a little more mindful of what i'm playing if that pulls me out of the flow state a little bit i'm i'm still really present because i'm just i'm re i'm like i tried and be in the music and really just take myself out of it you know that whole buddhist thing like you like you become the thing you're doing which means like you're not there anymore you disappear you're so deep in it that you're not there so to me, that's when I, because yeah, present can mean a lot of different things, but I, I look at it as that, as like when you can really get out of your own way and you're, you are so connected to the thing that like you, your ego, your, your story, all that shit's not there anymore. And so then you can really serve, in this case, serve the music because it's, it's like you, you just take yourself out of it. You are so deep in it that you're not even, that you're gone. So that's, that's how I see it. And I think that's, um, I don't think so much of like, what can I do to put myself there? It's more, it's not so much focusing on what I have to change about myself. It's, it's just merely focusing on the things I should be focusing on, like the music and like everything else that's happening around me. And, and even if I am focusing on the sound of my instrument, it's still, it's not so much, it's a subtle difference, but it still makes a difference. Like I'm, if I'm paying attention to the snare sound or if I'm hitting the rim shot or just a center hit with a fatter sound, it's, it's really about like how that is interacting with, with the rest of the sounds around me. So it's, it's a subtle perspective shift, but it, I think it's a pretty deep one. Yeah. yeah, no, so, it's, It sounds that way. I yeah. mean, you, um, yeah. you did some stuff with um, Zukowski, right? Like Hoshino therapy type stuff. Oh, Wow, dude, you're, you're the only person. I, you're the only person I've heard in years mention Hoshino therapeutic arts. So yeah, I, I had um, an issue. I had an issue a couple of years ago, or more than a couple of years ago. I went to him for like a session. Yeah, no, that dude changed my life, and um, I just do you know Mike Rivard? Uh, I haven't seen him in years, but I I do know him. 
Yeah. We were messaging on, on Facebook Messenger, and I was like, hey, man, just, do you have an email address for Zukowski? And he, he like, was like, LOL, like, you know, dude doesn't even have, like, internet. Um, like, just call him. Calls landline. Um, so, yeah, because, yeah, I, it was fused. Like, I, I've fucked myself up, and I went to, like, a regular sports doctor, and they're like, yeah, you're done with drums. Oh, and shit. I was pretty heavily depressed beyond the normal depression I grew up with. It was just like, I was like, like I said, drums had become my identity and I had, re I had really worked my way up. You know, when, you, when I got to Berkeley, I was like king shit in my neighborhood, but then all of a sudden I'm there and there's hundreds of me there. Like everybody's like, not everybody. There were some drummers that weren't like that serious or that good, but there were a lot of people that they were like the best where they came from. And, and so it's like, I, to, to get to like work my way up to where I was getting in the ensembles that everybody wanted to be in and playing with musicians that I wanted to play with. It took, it took a lot of work to get there. And, and it was like, my whole goal was to like network, play with the right people and drop out and go on the road. And I, like, I was on the verge of that happening. And, and then it was like, I woke up and I used to, you know, there was a grind and this is before they had drums in all the rooms. Like I had to carry my kit everywhere with me and because I knew I wasn't going to graduate. I basically just signed up for ensembles most of the days. So yeah. I'd be like lugging my kit up and down stairs, setting up, breaking down, playing for hours. And this is also when music was changing where things were getting louder and guitars were using more powerful amps and I had to hit the drums harder. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I was, really hitting really hard playing long hours and playing a bunch during the day and then practicing in between and then lugging my drums. Like I would share a cab with Dyson and go play that club, the gallery and then come back. And by the end of the night I could, uh, you know, I could like barely feel my hands when I go to sleep, I'd wake up the next day, I'd be good to go. And then one day I remember after a really heavy weekend of gigs, I wake up like on a Monday and I can't like move my hands or I can barely move them. And it didn't go away. And that's when it became a problem. That's when I went to, to that sports doctor. And I ran into Fuse. And he was like, what's up? And I told him what was going on. He was like, man, fuck that. He's, he, and he gave me Zukowski's number. And he said, call this guy. He's going to say a bunch of shit that's going to sound weird to you. But just, you know, keep an open mind. So, and this is like 88, 89 and, you know, alternative medicine and holistic healing wasn't as mainstream as it is now. So, yeah, I went to go see him at his office or a place he was practicing in Boston. And um, like the first thing, the first things he asked were like, what do you eat? What's, what, what's your diet? And um, so he, he kind of like changed my, like just had me like flip my life around in a lot of ways. What were you eating then? Like, I was the opposite of what I eat now. Like, um, I grew up, like I didn't eat vegetables. I was just like sugar, dairy, red meat, a lot of processed junk shit. And, um, gotcha. didn't really drink water, the exact opposite. And he was like, you got to cut out dairy, sugar, red meat, refined grains, processed foods. And I was like, that's my, I was like, what is, what is there left? Cause I didn't know that there was all <laughs> the shit. So <laughs> and I didn't get, I didn't believe him. And he was like, man, sugar's poison. I was like, no, it's not. And he said, don't, don't, don't take my word for it. Just like cut out sugar for a month. And he said, you're going to, you're going to detox. You're going to get headaches when that shit wears off three to four weeks from now, go out and eat some like glazed donuts or whatever, something heavily sugary and tell me how you feel. And he said, do that with all this, do it with dairy, do it with meat. And, um, he was like dead on with all of it. 
And um, so he got me, and he was, he was pushing me in a macrobiotic direction. So I was macrobiotic at first and I was fully vegan, but that actually was, I wasn't like my healthiest when I was fully vegan. And, um, mm-hmm. but that was also, it was on tour back then. It was hard to get like alternative sources of, of protein. Now I think it's easier, but, um, but yeah, I, I changed my diet a lot. He, he had me change how I used to sit really low and like play up to the drums. He had me change like my posture and like how I set the kid up. And, um, and he kind of taught me a lot. The, the one thing he didn't get into is like more like the, the mental health shit and breathing. Cause th- those were the, even he, and he helped me a lot and he got me to the point where I was told I would never play again. So like I was on the road within like months. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, yeah, he really, he's one of a, like a few people along the way that like really changed my life significantly. So, but I haven't talked to him in years, but yeah, it's funny. Cause like, I don't know a lot of people that know of him or know Hoshino. Yeah. That's a Northeast. I mean, that's, there's one guy in um, New York that does some stuff that was a student of his, but yeah, I had, I know a few people um, that have had problems. I don't, you know, what's weird is like, I know the fear is that like you get this, you get some kind of thing, like uh, some kind of injury that prevents you from playing. I don't know a ton. I don't really know of anyone that's ever had to like quit playing altogether. I'm sure it exists. I know people that have had to like stop or like fix some shit, but um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of this stuff is preventative depending on like what it is Um, or you can at least maintain it. Um, But, but I, yeah, I mean, I was wearing my bass too high and um, I fucked my left hand up, which is not typically an injury that bass players have, but you know, like it was a thing. It was, it was awful. I was on the road. I was like halfway through a tour when, you know, I had this like ridiculous pain and you know, the tour was completed itself fine. And I didn't have to like, you know, I could play how I always play, but it definitely, it definitely, there was some pain there and I went to see him and he, you know, he, took me through some stretching and, and showed me some stuff, but he, he also wanted to see like, well, what are you doing? You know, like, what are you physically doing? That's making this happen. And then, you know, we figured out just had to wear the base lower and like really figure out where, where stuff's supposed to be and, and like really pay attention to ergonomics. And that's basically been able to get me through. Like I have, you know, every now and then, like I'll feel some weird shit in my hand, but it really hasn't, you know, it hasn't really slowed me down. And, you know, the more, the more people I talk to, the more common this thing actually is, but it's definitely, I don't really think you can do this and not have some experience. Everybody's going to get some injuries. Uh, The reason with me, they were chronic for another reason, which we can get into if you want, but like I, the ergonomic thing, I remember like he kind of got me, I was playing in pain, but I was able to play and I still, to this day, I have this, this routine of stretches that now is a combination of some Qigong and like some yoga stuff, but also some basic movements he gave me years ago that I still do every day. And you probably know the same ones. So, um, but, and he gave me this like board, this backboard to, to like roll on. You kind of like lay down on it. It gets in. I mean, that was for me because I had a lot of back problems, but uh, um, anyway, he, I had like knee problems really bad where again, years later I went to like a sports doctor and they were like, yeah, it's probably a torn meniscus based on if you're playing a lot of heavy, like right foot bass drum stuff, 
It's like a lot of basketball players get it. You probably need surgery, but I went to see him and he, and he was like, let me, let me see you. He said, just bring a kick, a throne and a pedal. Cause he was going to, he was in New York once in a while. He said, just like, bring your shit here, set it up and show me. And I did. And he looked down at me and he just took my ankle and he moved it. And he explained like my, he's like your ankle, knee and hip need to be in alignment. And if they're not, and if you're doing a lot of this, like if you're playing hours a day, like with a lot of force and you're kind of dancing on the pedal, you're going to get really bad tendon. It's like, it's called the ITB. It's like a band of tendons that goes up, like up into your hip. And wow. he said, it's just so inflamed that it's like, it's doing something to like, I guess the nerves around your knee. And he said, just, change the angle of your bass drum and i had to kind of reteach myself how to how to like to play with my foot in the position on the pedal but it cleared up like immediately um but yeah but yeah everybody i know at some point like now i'll get people hitting me up say who's your acupuncturist there's a guy named luke hamilton in new york i've been seeing for years um because people will be like yeah i have this thing my thumb my elbow whatever my back and it's Everybody, it happens once in a while, but for me, it's just been chronic my whole career. And that's, that was like the mental health component that, that, like I said, if you want to get into that's something that it wasn't until I got into therapy for, you know, not even related to, to physical issues, um, that I made the connection that, uh, it's, I mean, the, the diagnosis I was given, like, cause I went to other like doctors later and they were like yeah it's basically fibromyalgia but that's like just a blanket term for like neuromuscular shit that they don't know what it is mm-hmm. and um and so over the years body workers would work on me and they would say hey like your muscles you know healthy muscles are supposed to contract and release and when they're when you work the tension out they just should feel like you're pressing into meat yours feel like steel cables oh, like shit. the muscles up and down your back and um and i remember like hearing that a lot from different body workers and one massage therapist was like, yeah, my mother has fibromyalgia and like her muscles feel like yours. Like you just, they don't give. And, um, and I would like with, with like acupuncture and certain massage therapists, they could, they could open my shit up. But as soon as I would start playing, it would just like everything would solidify again. And Mm -hmm. I remembered when I started doing deep therapy work and like going back into my past and it's like, Oh, I've been kind of living in a state like emotionally in like a state of hypervigilance. Um, and it's, it's like, and that kind of like my, my neuromuscular system has kind of, it is just mirroring what's going on emotionally where if, and I also have to learn a little bit about neuroscience, but like when, when you're in a fight or flight state, um, it's your, uh, sympathetic nervous system is activated and it releases like stress hormones, basically like cortisol, things like that. And when, you know, at, but that you're not supposed to always be in a state of fight or flight. That's only supposed to happen. Like when your life is in danger. And so when your life is in danger, your muscles should tense up. You should be ready to fight or run. And, um, and you should not be relaxed. Like, so like all, you just, your brain releases this like cocktail of very uncomfortable chemicals that'll like make help save your life if you need to. And, um, but my thing was like, um, from a really early age, just like my fight or flight response was always active. And so what happened without realizing it, like healthy muscles are supposed to contract and release mine. Mine have always been slightly contracted, like not so much that I'm locked up and I can't move, but there's always 
they're always slightly contracted. And as a result, like when I go and play drums or do any, like for a long time afterwards, even if I stretch before and after, but afterwards, like that just leads to more inflammation than usual because your muscles don't get a chance to relax and recover or relax fully in my case. So, um, that was, I remember like when, like I had that light bulb moment because it was like, I, when I did a lot of therapy, I stopped doing body work for a while and, um, I was taking painkillers for a while and they not only killed the pain, but they got to the root of the pain because they kind of chilled my nervous system out. So for the two years that I took Vicodin on a regular basis, like it didn't just kill the pain, but I didn't need any body work because like my, my, my neuromuscular system was just in a a much more like state of ease for a long time. And then, but that was the whole thing. Like just taking that shit every day, your tolerance goes up and that becomes a problem. So I weaned myself off and um, started getting body work again. And that's when, but I'd done a lot of therapy in between. And that's when that acupuncturist, Luke Hamilton, he was describing something about my muscles and just for whatever, whatever words he used, like that was a light bulb moment. Cause I was like, Oh, this is you're kind of just he, the way he was describing what my muscles felt like. I was like, that kind of sounds like what like my, my mental state has always been. And that's, that's when it was like, all right, this is actually what's going on. And so since then, like it's gotten a lot better. Like stuff that I thought I was just had to live forever has slowly, I mean, it's not easy to reverse that shit when for decades, like your nervous system is kind of just mm-hmm. function in a certain way. But uh, yeah, but that, you know, we all have trauma and it all affects us differently. That that's how mine affected me. Wow. And um, yeah. So, but it's, it's, yeah, it's a mixed blessing. Like, like when I first, like, could when I had to simplify my playing for physical reasons, it actually made me a more musical drummer and mm-hmm. also got me more into programming production and other things, which I, I think ultimately like the, in the like you in enough time, I can see wow, all this stuff was actually really good for me. And it also made me change my diet because I like, if I hadn't seen Richard Dukowski, I wouldn't have changed my diet. And um, so a lot of good things came, came from it, but yeah, it's, years of pain that's now slowly um, not in as much pain as I was for years, which is a nice thing. Yeah, that's great. That's great, man. I'm glad you were able to figure that out. But yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a weird, it's, it's the weird component of of this whole thing. Like the physical, uh, the physical act of playing and like your, your, uh, your physical health as it relates to the instrument and, um, all that stuff, man. And it's definitely something, you know, I don't know if instrumentalists have it as tough as singers. I mean, I think drummers probably do to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, like there's stuff, there's stuff with like bass. Like I've, I've, I don't know. I don't know if I've compromised too much, but like, I don't care about the pissing match about whether I use heavy strings or light strings. Like I use what, what sounds good to me and which, and what doesn't feel impossible to play, you know, and, and, you know, it's not for me, it's more about kind of like the, the overall, you know, how does it sound? How does it feel to play? Am I hurting myself? But, um, but yeah, no, it's weird, man. It's, it's definitely, I can see how that would be a traumatic thing where it's like, you're, you know, you're, you're known for a thing. That's what people quote unquote love you for. And then you can't really do that thing or you feel like it's being threatened. You know, and it's, 
And it's hard. It's hard, but like I said, ultimately, it, I think it was for the best. It was just, it's, it's perspective. Like, if I had chosen to simplify my playing because I, purely for musical reasons, and it was my decision to do so, I wouldn't have been fighting it so like subconsciously as hard as if because it was threat kind of like forced upon me just because all of a sudden I had these physical limitations that I hadn't had before. But, uh, you know, it was, but like I would listen to like my favorite shit and it like the things that like became my favorite and it was like more and more, it's like, yeah, well, it's always the understated stuff that I like better anyway. And, uh, and, um, you know, and it's like, I tried to find recordings of Chick Webb, you know, because he was like in his day, like the badass drummer, but you know, he, he had some major like limitations and I heard he was in pain all the time, but uh, wow. unfortunately those are the really old recordings where, where you don't hear a lot of drums on those records and you kind of had to be there. But, uh, but yeah, I tried to find inspiration from shit like that. And, um, and, uh, you know, people that have like way heavier limitations than I do physically that still find a way to like thrive on their instruments. So, um, yeah, now with Instagram, I'll, I'll see shit all the time. And I'm like, man, I'm never going to complain again when I like see what there's, there's a handful of drummers that, that are dealing with like really ma major, major limitations. And I'm amazed how they're able to play what they play and they sound great. So, wow. Yeah, no, it's, there's always a, there's always a perspective to be had, man. You know, there's always another way to look at something, um, you know, but yeah, I, but I think maintenance is important because, because ultimately that's the thing that's gonna, you know, you have to find a way to maintain the vessel. But I think that the real part that's the challenge, and this is kind of the overarching thing. And this is where I feel like I have this in common with you. It's like the relationship to playing music or being a musician can't really be based on like what you're capable of playing, you know, like, or it's gotta be, yeah. it's gotta be deeper than that. And I think the idea of wanting to venture beyond that, whether it's circumstantial where it's like, okay, you don't have a choice. Like you're, yeah. or if it's just understanding that like there's a bigger universe than like the, the floor of people that can just shred. Um, and, and wondering if people are going to love you the same way if you decide you don't want to really do that anymore or you don't want to stay in that room anymore um, all the time. Like that's been a thing that I've, I've thought about a lot. Cause it's like, you know, I'm, I know for me, I kind of moved out here to, I don't know, maybe chase some different shit, you know, or at least, you know, flip some stuff. But, you know, I still get pe people that want to learn how to do specific things. I think, I think you can do it all. You know, like I, like we haven't really worked together, but just through social media, I've, you know, I've, I've heard your production. Mm. I've heard your chop shit. Um, I've heard you're not, you know, like you're, uh, like, per, like non bass shit, you, you like your chops on other instruments and as a programmer. And like, you know, you, you, you see, it sounds like you can kind of do it all. So, you know, no reason not to, to do it all, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, it kind of sucks like now because like you, how you haven't been living out here that long. You know what I mean? It's like right now I was getting out here where I was like, okay, I'm finally going to like be in LA and kind of get out there a little more. Cause usually I'll just come here do a bunch of work and go back to New York. And that's like, no, I'm going to be here. I'm going to hang with my friends. I'm going to start doing some playing out here finally. And, um, and it's like, now it's like, all right, all that shit's on hold. 
but uh but uh yeah it's to go back to your thing like what you're talking about yeah just um i think whatever you decide to do if you just do it like it'll happen you know what i mean like it it all it always does i mean i'm sure you get people asking you for advice like hey i want to i want to do what you do i want to get into this and it's for me it's always the same basic answer which is just like be be good at what you do be realistic about like can you compete if like the arena you want to get into uh be reliable like don't be a dick and just make people aware of who you are you know have some kind of presence like on social media or and or in person wherever the hangs are but um it's the other thing is the other thing is just like keep doing it like person because some, some people, like, it shit clicks right away and, like, they get to, like, their place, you know, like, their ultimate place within a year. Some people, it's, like, decades. And then, you know, I always use Layla Hathaway as an example because she, I was sure she was going to, like, be huge right out of Berkeley. And it, it took her, like, 25 years before she really crossed over to mainstream popularity and started winning Grammys and all that shit. Yeah. So, was it the Snarky Puppy video that did it? Because I remember hearing that's, her. Yeah. Yeah. She did. She did some like bonus track, like because Dyson put me onto that "Sun Don't Lie" Marcus record, like before mm-hmm. it was available in the states. So yeah, you, you remember that Tower Records that was on the corner of um, Newbury Street and Mass Ave? Like I bought "Sun Don't Lie" as a Japanese import for like thirty bucks, and oh, um, man. yeah, in like ninety three. And so she was on. Yeah. There was like a like a bonus track that she sang on, and I was like, oh wow, cool, you know. It's, Donnie Hathaway's daughter. And then, yeah, that snarky puppy video where she's singing like chords and shit, you know? Yeah. That, that's what kind of put her on. Cause she had a lot, she had a cult following for years before that. And she had a lot of like, like major fans, like Prince Stevie, you know, like heavyweights, like knew mm-hmm. she was and loved her. But, uh, you know, so she, she was successful, but like she didn't cross over to like, like household name success until the snarky puppy thing, I think. So that's cool. Um, I'm glad it happened for her. Yeah, but the thing is, even if it never did, she still was had a very successful career up until then. But just the fact that she just did what she did, and you know what I mean, she couldn't have predicted Snarky Puppy. She couldn't have predicted that that a record would have been made like that, where every, where it's an audience there with headphones on while the record's being made, and you know, um, the inter- she couldn't have, you know, back in the late '80s, like no one would have predicted. There's this thing called YouTube, and like. 25 years from now people are going to be passing around like this something called a viral video it's this is what's going to happen to you and you're going to get a grammy so um yeah can you imagine like if someone because i've said this a few times but like if someone just said like if, if you could go back and see young young you like at school yeah and like if you kind of did that back to the future shit where you like reveal yourself and you're like Yo, like the fu- the phone is gonna be a big fucking deal, like twenty five yeah. years from now. Like I, I wouldn't yeah. have believed that shit at all, man. I would have been like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, just just the fact that you and I are doing this thing. Like, what's a podcast? What's what's a mobile phone? What's Zoom? Right. You know, what's high speed internet? It's like we're this entire thing. And you and I met online. You, we met in a in a like a format that didn't exist before, and we're right. doing this thing on these little handheld devices and uh yeah it's yeah a lot of shit has changed but that's the thing that's all the that's the unknown factor and i think that's that's 
goes back to my point about just decide what you want to do and just go for it. And, um, you know, if you follow the rules, just be good at it and don't be a dick and just be reliable. Like eventually, if you just, if you just stay with that, you know, it might take 25 years or it might take a year or somewhere in between like shit, the unknown will get, get in there and like start connecting dots. So right on. man. Um, yeah. Well, last, this is like the last question I usually ask people, um, book, movie, show recommendations. Like, is there anything you've been like checking out during this downtime or this? Man, I've been watching more TV. Like (laughs) I usually like, like to just be working a lot. And if I'm not working, I'm just doing other shit that like, I have to force myself to just take the time on time and sit in front of the TV. But like lately I'm watching a lot. My girl and I are watching a lot. So I'm getting her caught up on better call Saul so we can watch the, like the last season together. Um, okay. So yeah, I love that show breaking Bad. obviously to me, the wire, like my still my, my favorite show ever. And I'll, I'll just, I'll wait a few years between watching the whole thing start to finish over and over. Cause I don't want to watch it like too often, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm doing that now. Actually. Um, Oh, with the wire. Yep, I just finished season three. Uh, is this your first time watching it, or your repeat watch? I'm repeat watching. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know. Yeah. Um, um, actually, here's a like a little fun fact. Lance Reddick, who plays Lieutenant Daniels, I mm-hmm. think it's is it Lieutenant Daniels. Um, he's also in a show called Bosch that I wrote that has a few uh, wire people also. But he, the reason I started watching the wire was because he's like a classically trained pianist and singer. And um, I think he went to Juilliard or Eastman or something. And um, a friend of mine, Alan Schwartz, produced a record years ago. And it was when The Wire was first coming out. He said, there's a singer, Lance, um, we're going to do his record. And it was me, I think James Genus and Danny Sadamik and Alan who plays guitar. I think that was the core band. I forget. I guess Lance played keyboards. Maybe somebody else did. But mm we did a record and I recognized him from some law and order episodes. And he was on that show Oz a little bit. And he said, yeah, I'm doing this new show called the wire. The first season just started. And I was like, well, I'll check it out. And, um, yeah, that's what got me into it. But yeah, he's, I, I just found the record that we did on, uh, on Apple music. Oh, that's cool. And, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, I've watched so many shows that I forget. Like I'll be really into a show and I'll forget about it. Cause there's like so many, I don't really watch a lot of movies anymore. There's a lot of great original series I'm into. Um, but I'll watch them very slowly, except lately I'm actually binge watching shit because just with the, the, I don't know, everything's so weird right now. Why not? Yeah. May as well. Yeah. And then, um, books, I, I got into audible. And so like, I, it's been a while since I've read a book. I would like, I was reading a lot on Kindle on my phone for years. Um, the book I'm listening to right now is called Sapiens. Do you know that I, one? No, I don't know that one. Uh, a bunch of people I respected mentioned it. I would say just uh, check it out. I, I, just from what little I know of you, I think you'll dig it. Um, as far as like, I'm usually doing, that's the exception. I'm usually doing like growth books. So like one of the last, books i did before this was a book called the body keeps a score about trauma um which is very relevant to what what we were talking about like um tension in the body and things um and 
Uh, the Untethered Soul is a book I tell everybody to read. I don't know if you've ever checked that one out. No, I haven't. It's, it's kind of like Buddhism, like just condensed and like a very palatable way for, for people today in the West to, to take in. Um, I don't know. There, there's a lot of them, but uh, I don't know. What are, what are some of your favorite, what, like, what, what are some books you've listened to or read recently? That I've been checking out. Um, well, it's, it's, you know, it, it wavers sometimes. Um, I mean, I've finished like the first, like there's like sci-fi books. I haven't, you know, I've been meaning to get to like, you know, but I finished, the, I finished Dune cause um, they're make they're making another movie. Like they're going to, someone's going to, it's the guy that did Blade Runner 2049. So mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I finally got around to reading that. And then I read, I'm reading the second one now, um, Doom Messiah, which is pretty yeah. cool. Um, I mean, cause I like a lot of that shit for whatever reason, like I go through phases where I want to read, you know, like I want to go to a different place. Like, a, like I like world building yeah. stuff. Um, Have you, did you watch Altered Carbon? No, I haven't seen that. It's a Netflix original. The, f- the second season got mixed reviews. The first season got great reviews or relatively great reviews. Um, it's kind of like Blade Runner meets, um, a book. I don't know. It's, I would say, check it out. Have you seen the killing? That's another, uh, like original series. No, I, I forget the, cause, cause the, one of the stars of the killing is the like protagonist in altered carbon, but altered carbon. If you're into blade runner, there's some, there's some parallels there and visually it, it kind of, it's reminiscent of Blade Runner, but it deals with, um, with the idea of being able to like upload and download human consciousness. But oh. you combine that with uh, capitalism, predatory capitalism. And oh, shit. it's like, it, it's kind of a Blade Runner dystopian, semi dystopian future where what happens when the technology allows us to do that, you mix that with, with economic inequality it's a it's a pretty cool cool show i think you would dig it that's like that totally sounds um, like it's right up my alley yeah yeah check it out altered carbon it's it's all on netflix and um yeah i like some sci-fi that's something i liked a lot and um did you check out watchmen watchmen oh yeah the the this hbo watchmen i really like mm-hmm. that and, yeah um, that's what's phenomenal yeah there was another sci-fi-ish thing the expanse oh yeah yeah you know it's weird i i taught so this guy um like there's there's a movie i don't know what the fuck's happening with it um but there's a movie about um neil bogart that was gonna be made and uh like you know they're gonna talk about casablanca records so this, this guy steve Strait. um who he's a producer, but he's an actor on the show. I, I forget what his character name is, but he he's playing. I don't know if they're gonna actually make this movie or if it's on hold or what. But he's he's playing like the guy. He's playing Gene Simmons because you know Kiss was on oh, Gossip Winter wow. Records. <laughs> so he came he came over. Um, like my friend taught him a lesson in New York, but he was out here, so he came over and we just I just showed him some bass shit like that, like what Gene Simmons did. You know, just like. Here's how you, here's where you put your left hand, because um, Gene actually has decent left hand technique, and then his, he picks with his right hand. So I showed him that shit, but he 
he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I work on this show and I'm in it. The expanse. Oh, he's, a, like, he's a star. I'm looking. I didn't know his name. He's like the main dude. In yeah. Show. Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. So have you yeah. watched it? I, ha- I haven't, man. And you're the second person because <laughs> Vernon, Vernon loves that show. And he was, he yeah, was like, you got to watch it. And I was like, shit, I do have yeah. to watch it. Yeah, wa- yeah, watch it. I think it's an uh, I think it's an Amazon Prime series. Yeah. Well, dude. In any case, thanks for um, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, in the not so distant future, we can actually hang in person. So. Yeah, that'd be awesome, man. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode. Special thanks to Wolf. For more about him, go to wolfadelic.com. New episode next Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening.